Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on this morning show on a cloudy spring morning here in the capital is Ian Cadger. Ian is the Managing Director at Offshore Products International Limited, a manufacturer and stockholder of pipeline products based in Scotland. Um, Ian, very warm welcome to yourself today. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Uh, no, thank you, Scott. Uh, thank you for being in touch with us. No, I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, it's a real pleasure having you with us as well, Ian. Um, I think we should start, of course, by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that we're speaking on a day where we're still in the grip of this sort of global COVID-19 situation. We have been for the best part of 14 months. So I'm interested to understand more about how all of this has affected you and your business over this last year. Yes. Um, if I'm being brutally honest with you, um, the, over the last 12, 14 months has been, we're probably different to 99% of the companies uh, in the UK. Uh, we've just gone from strength to strength. Um, we've uh, gone into different markets um, in Africa. Uh, we've now into Kazakhstan and business has just been unbelievable. So that's quite interesting. So what the pandemic has done for you is it's essentially opened opportunities, hasn't it? And heard, yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. Mm. And we've heard a lot of stories about that, haven't we, um, across the industry world? I mean, we've seen innovation, we've seen pivoting on an unprecedented level. And what we are finding is that people with that sort of entrepreneurial mind and spirit are finding the opportunities. And they do say, don't they, don't waste a good crisis. And that essentially seems to be what you've done there. You've really sort of got down and thought about things and have really sort of diversified the business during this time. You're quite correct, Scott. Um, It's been hard. You know, but in business, it, it, that's the way the game is. Uh, you know, I've been working seven days a week to turn the company around. Um, we're now into Africa. We've just taken a huge project from the Congo. Um, we're doing so much work into Nigeria um, through uh, EPC contractors, where all the end users will be either Shell, Exxon, Mobile or Chevron, or any. So um, it's, it's been tough. You know, I'm not, um, I'm not going to say otherwise, but it's the, the rewards now is, uh, yeah, we're, we're fairly uh, reaping the award, shall we say. That's really encouraging. And when you've, of course, been carrying work out in these countries, particularly in Africa, um, have you found that you've sort of had to get around to the challenges of the pandemic in those places as well? Oh, yes. Um, the, the, um, with Africa, they they've closed. In Nigeria, they actually closed the country for two two weeks uh, because of this pandemic. Um, you know, but except for that, they came back and um, they knew that offshore products is a, a, a family-run business. They know that. They know that they can call me um, twenty-four hours a day. We answer the telephone for them and. Um, now 
we're just it's just we've actually just received our first client and uh, from Nigeria and they was actually given a referral uh, from my little company from Shell Nigeria. <laughs> So word of mouth certainly does spread there. And uh, just going back, of course, to the very beginning of this whole situation, and I understand that it's different now because we know what we're working with. We know what we've got to work around. But when it was very much an unknown and people weren't necessarily sure about the risks of it, about catching it, whether they needed to be wearing certain protective equipment, did you find yourself having to sort of have some quite sort of frank and difficult conversations with people and having to manage people's mental health and anxieties quite early on, did you find? Um, if I'm being honest with you, we're we're a we're a family run business. So, um, my my daughter she suffers from me- mental health. Um, so we 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 looked after her. Um, but my we've we've employed my nephew's wife um uh, to work with us as well, and um, we've taken her on board. Um, uh, Samantha has been more. Um, more outgoing, you know, more uh, happy to to talk uh, to Becky. Um, and it's been, and it's to be honest, it's been working really well. Uh, but the difference with us is that we never stopped during this pandemic. Mm. We the, the office was open seven days a week. Um, we did put Samantha on furlough for about I think it's three or four weeks maximum in that time which I'm uh, proud to say, either my wife or myself, we never took any uh, furlough money at all. Uh, we just worked right through it. Um, but but except for that, um, no, we just kept going. It was just purely just another day to us, you know. Mm. And when you say, of course, the office stayed open, um, was that sort of staying open as normal or did you have some of the stuff that weren't furloughed, just maybe working remotely once or twice a week? Yeah, we, we no, the office was open um, mm. right through it. Um, uh, you know, the only thing that we changed was we didn't allow anyone in to come in and visit us. Uh, the drivers who were delivering goods to us was not allowed to come into the into the offices. They had to uh, wash their hands, put on masks that we provided for them, uh, so that in the truck we then unloaded them took the goods in and then it it worked really well if I'm being honest Mm. so you think that sort of little slice of normality has really helped you during this time particularly in in terms of motivation and mentally you think 100% 100% I could not do what a lot of people have done uh, stayed in their houses Um, you know I needed to work I had to work um so uh, I can feel their pain, but it, it, on the other hand, it's, uh, you know, we had to keep the company going. Otherwise, you know, the company would have finished. So mm. that's the brutal truth in it. And ultimately, it's that which drives you during a crisis, isn't it? It's that idea that I have to do this or we're facing a disaster here. I mean, that's all the motivation really that you need. 100%, yes. I, I'm one of these people that uh, I need a goal in life. You know, um, so I, I, you know, for me, I there was no other option. We we had to keep the company going. So, um, but my 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 daughter, yes, she went on furlough, as I said. But 
uh, it was only for a short period of time. She what she was she's like me. She wanted to work as well. She needed to get back to normality. Uh, so that's why um, the office was kept open right through this pandemic. And thinking back, sort of over the last fourteen months as a whole, would you say that? your experience of leading the company through this has actually taught you anything in your position? Um, yes. It's made me more motivated, if I'm being honest with you. Um, it's, it's, uh, I've got the bit between my teeth now, um, you know, to drive on. Um, the, the company has just finished. Um, we've just finished our uh, financial year, um, and it's the best year we've had in 22 years in business. Which is quite incredible considering the climate that we're in. And um, I think that's also a testament to the team around you, isn't it? And we've heard so many success stories um, across the industry world of how people have really brought the best in themselves out during the uh, the pandemic. And I appreciate, (laughs) excuse me, I do appreciate, of course, that you know your team very, very well, because of course you say you are a family-run business, but is there anything about them that maybe you've learnt as well that you didn't necessarily even know before about the way that they work and about how determined they are? Yes, determination has come from my wife. Uh, uh, we have uh, an autistic son that works with me. Um, he helps in the office. Uh, he helps in, my, in the warehouse. Um, and he has been absolutely brilliant through this. He wanted to come to work. He wants to come and help his dad. Um, just yesterday, we, we, he was in the office, he was in the warehouse helping me pack up a project up for 14 tons going away to Germany. Um, and he was in the op- uh, in the warehouse he, he helping me band the, the crates, putting the crates, uh, the bars inside the crates. So doing all the warehouse stuff and mm-hmm. uh, every one of them, my, my daughter, my wife, my son, uh, I can't be more proud of can't be. Everybody pitched in, didn't they? And it's that sort of yeah. sense of community as well that I think is going to be so important for industry going forward and indeed for the whole country because we have seen people coming together and we've seen a sense of community spirit. We've seen people taking to their doorsteps on a Thursday night, clapping the frontline workers, for example. And that's something that really we shouldn't lose sight of, isn't it, as we move forward out of this? Oh, no, I totally agree with you. You know, it's, it, it has taken um, people closer together. Um, you know, I, I still hope that it will do that once, um, you know, things are back to what what could be normal. Well, I hope it is normal. <laughs> yeah, it's um. there's a lot of talk about what that new normal might look like, isn't there? And um, I yes. think some people say that for them, maybe the flexible working model might be part of the way that they do business for the long run but another thing as well is just a little bit of a focus on sustainability so even though of course your business is going to be functioning largely as it was because that is the way that you work I think the general business environment is going to change quite a lot isn't it yes um uh, you know uh, you're you're quite right you know this uh, there's a lot of my suppliers that's been working from home um where not only suppliers, but the banks as well. Um, and it's been, if I'm being brutally honest, it's been annoying for me because um, I'm needing stuff done yesterday um, and then you're not getting responses back in time uh, because obviously they're not in the office working. Um, 
So it's taken a bit longer to get back, which it has been annoying, if I'm being honest. Mm, so that's one thing, I suppose, that you've had to sort of adapt to, isn't it? Sort of that little yes. bit of tardiness on the other side, even if you're, of course, just running all systems go. Yes, yes, you're quite correct. Quite correct. Um, mm. And it, it, it's taken a bit of time to get used to, you know, like uh, uh, a true example, one of the suppliers we called out and we were wanting our goods and, uh, you know, I was speaking to this lady on the phone and I says to her, please uh, transfer me through to the sales department and she turns around to me and goes, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm out walking the dog. Was um, that's, that's one of the funniest uh, uh, moments that happened during this uh, pandemic for us. Mm. And I suppose they say, don't they, that the ability to adapt to things like this is the whole, one of the hallmarks of great leadership, isn't it? And even though, yeah. of course, it's a massive inconvenience. I mean, I think the industry world has really stood up to the challenge because, as, as I said earlier, we've seen pivoting, we've seen adapting, we've seen innovation at a level we've never seen before. No, I totally agree with you on that. Yes, totally. And um, I think that is something that we're certainly going to see more of in the future. And I would like, speaking of the future, to address that just before we wrap things up, Ian, because I'm conscious that we are beginning to run short of time. Um, I know that we don't have a magical crystal ball in front of us, but there is a clear roadmap out of social restrictions now. We can have a little bit of optimism of the future, cautiously, albeit that may be. Um, But for you, as we hopefully emerge from this, what is the aim for you and Offshore Products, your business? And what are you really hoping to achieve over the next 12 months? The next 12 months for us is we've we've just recently just, uh, he starts next month, we've just employed a general manager Mm. Um, to come and help me uh, run the company um, because we're now getting into larger projects worth millions of dollars um, where that is taking up a lot of my time and the day-to-day running of the of, of offshore products will be handed to uh, Mr. Paul Clark um, who, who will be looking at um, running the, the offshore products where I concentrate on doing the project work. But my aim this year is to build on the 1.5 million. Um, so, you know, we're going to try and hit 2 million this year uh, for um, for a staff of, what we're looking at, a staff of five people hit 2 million will be unbelievable. Certainly so in this climate, and I'm absolutely thrilled that the businesses are growing um, in tandem with that as well. It's um, really, really exciting times, it sounds like, for Offshore. And uh, I have to say as well, Ian, thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today and share the story of how your business has been getting on. It's been a real eye-opener for me, and I'm sure the listeners share that sentiment too. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. No, thank you so much for your time. And most importantly as well, Ian, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well. Yes, same to yourself. Thank you. That's brilliant. And coming up next on the programme, of course, we'll be hearing from our chairman here at the Leaders' Council, renowned former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have 
confidence and courage, obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. 
and that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. 
Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking 
the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. But it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of 
thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019, I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be 
substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand 
and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the leaders' council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn Mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank really you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage. 
have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.